are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of truth, open debate, and free speech in the vast wasteland that is the New World Order under Joe Biden. It's a truth to see, and we're joined by guest co-host Jason Goodman on today's great episode of The Backstory. Jason, you, you on? You there? Yes, I'm here, Lee. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm very well. Glad to hear you're great. So we have a great episode today. Rod's put together, as usual. He did, Rod is great, isn't he, Jason? He is. You yes, do? yes. Yeah, Super our, our uh, producer, Rod from Philly, does a great job. And today's show is no exception. In the first hour, to talk about all things England is a great Ian Schilling. And I'm curious yeah. to see what he's going to say about the goings-on with the Queen. Mm, and yeah. You know what else I have to ask Ian about? Something you and I have talked about last week. The mm-hmm. Notting Hill Carnival. Oh, yeah, right. And so it'll and there's a lot more. Liz Truss is going to put a price cap on oil or energy. Yeah. Her Seems like solution, something you could do if you're selling it. <laughs> right. And it's 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 stupid. Because if you think yeah. about it, their problem is there's not enough energy since they've cut off energy from Russia. But right. if they cut if they put a price cap on it, it's gonna increase demand, right? I don't understand how it works. I mean, it it seems to me, if I walk into the Mercedes dealership and say, I'd like a 600 SL, but I'm putting a price cap at $80, give it to me, they'll tell me to leave. The person selling it gets to put the price cap. No? How does the buyer put a price cap? Well, the short answer is they sort of can't. And that's why, you know, who's really mad about that proposal too? Norway. Because they sell a lot of oil and other right. energy, right? So they're going to be yeah. affected too. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll talk to Ian about that. Then in the second hour, we have the great journalist Nabosho Balak, and we'll find out what's going on with Armenia. That's in the yeah. news. But first, yeah. Jason, let's get to some stuff that's going on in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Hit it. Jason, this, do the honor. This is the backstory. Well done, Jason. So I want to get to, to a couple of clips first. This was on Tucker Carlson, I think, last night. But uh, this happened recently. And let me ask you a question. Do you think that yeah. the FBI that mm. lied about the Hunter Biden laptop knowing that they'd had it a year and lied about it, would hesitate to politicize the January 6th hearings? Well, no, I mean, they've been doing it since January 7th, I think. I, I would argue January 6th, because... Right, do you even know, the 4th. <laughs> right, because we don't know. They won't say whether they had FBI agents there. Right. Sources and methods. Yeah. So I'm going to say this January 6th hearings are another form of election interference. Do you agree? 
Yes. Now, it's taken on very fascist overtones. And let's play the first clip from Tucker. Hit it. It shocks the conscience of everyone who sees it. But the number of people who see it is very small because it is not covered by any media. And it's not just happening to Amy Kramer. This show has obtained a subpoena from Merrick Garland's DOJ issued in the past week. And what it demands is both unlawful and without precedent in American history. The subpoena claims to be investigating, quote, any claim that the vice president and or president of the Senate had the authority to reject or choose not to count presidential electors. Now, keep in mind that any claim you make as an American citizen about electors, any claim you make about American politics, period, is protected explicitly under the First Amendment. That's our core freedom. It's why we live here. It's why we're proud to be Americans. It's why so many American servicemen died protecting our country. Those are the freedoms that they fought to preserve. That's why nobody prosecuted leading Democrats in 2016 when they sought to reject electors for Donald Trump. Right. It's why none of those people, including Kamala Harris, is now in jail. But right now, according to the subpoena that we have obtained, Merrick Garland's DOJ is demanding all communication from the following people on this topic. And let's be clear before we read their names that it is not clear what the investigation is actually about. And that's the most terrifying part. What is this? On what grounds are you demanding my private communications with people? They never say. But included in this precedent-breaking sweep of political opponents of the Biden White House would be former White House advisor Bernie Carrick, who is the former police commissioner of New York City, Boris Epstein, who is the current attorney for Donald Trump. At no time in American history has it been okay to grab the personal communications of someone's lawyer, because those are privileged. Not anymore. Matt Morgan, Justin Clark, Kenneth Chesborough, Mike Roman, RNC official Joshua Finley, Trump attorneys John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, Joe DeGeneva, James Troopas, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, there you go. This is part one, and, and we'll play a little more later. Let me point out mm. something here. Yeah. If any congressman or senator wants it, I have proof, absolute proof, a confession from the person who did it, who worked with Alexander Chalupa, the DNC mm. operative, Ukrainian yeah. DNC operative, and she worked with convicted serial bomber Brett Kilbourne. And they right. went up they went up to Congress and I have a confession from the person on audio that I will give them. Wow. They tried to keep Trump from taking office after he won the election. And isn't trying to keep the president from taking office and they were working with Congress people, including Keith mm-hmm. Ellison and Marcy Kapoor. And I have wow. a shocking audio that 100% he, he talks about it and talks about how this is an official p- program of the DNC. I will give it to anyone. In fact, it occurs to me that I should, you know, I should probably give it to Larry Johnson. Oh, yeah, Larry Johnson. Good idea. Larry's a good guy. But if Donald Trump was smart, he would have talked to me at some point in the last couple of years. Do you agree? And, and I do Bannon agree. Was, if Bannon was smart, he would have had Trump talk to me. Because the, the material that I have is rock solid, 100% proven, and shocking. Think about that. The Democrats working with a convicted 
sure bomber and pedophile. Yeah. And a with Ukrainian ties to Ukraine. Right. Right. With extensive ties to Ukraine. He brought Living his wife there. over. Yeah. When she was fifteen from Ukraine. Crazy. Crazy. And then in a court case tried to change her passport. That's true too. Wow. But the point wow. is they went up to Congress to Keith Ellison, Marcy Kapoor, among others, in a sanctioned, by the way, and money to get him over here. He He's a, a South African who now lives in Israel. Money to bring oh. this guy over from Israel was funneled from the Democrats. And he thinks Soros. Right. Now, what we know is Brett Kimberlin paid money to have this guy come over. His name's Yanni, and he's been covered in mainstream publications. And I have him on audio admitting this. Have you heard it yet, Jason? I'm, I was going to ask you if I have. I'm not sure that I have. So, you know, shocking, but they should get it in front of Congress. And they should get it. I'll tell you who else. Tucker should run with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe through Tyler, he'd get to Tucker Carlson. But oh, I yeah. have no way now to get directly to Tucker. His old email address, he stopped using after his family was uh, attacked. But right. uh, what do you think, Jason? I mean, I think, I mean, honestly, Lee, I think they don't want evidence that doesn't prove what they're trying to prove. I think they manufacture evidence and they gerrymander reality to, you know, play up talking points that can sell a narrative and to deliberately ignore the type of evidence that you're talking about. I would frankly be shocked if evidence like that could go anywhere in terms of the January 6th committee. Yeah, but they'll try not to do it. But if... Right. It's a bombshell story, and it un unlocks a lot of other bombshell stories, including the yeah. fact that Kimberlin, was, who's an associate of Cody Shearer, one of Bill oldest friends, was working with the DNC. Hmm. That's shocking enough on its own, and it's never been yeah. covered. So yeah. let's, play, let's play the second clip from Tucker. Hit yeah. So what is this about? It can't possibly be about January 6th, the fake insurrection, the only insurrection in history with no guns, the insurrection in which the only person shot to death was a Trump supporter. No. The point of this is to suppress political dissent, to hobble an entire political party, and to keep any of these people from ever participating in American politics again. And by the way, the cost to each one of these individuals or to any person at whose house the FBI shows up is enormous. Ask anybody who's at the FBI showed up with guns at their home what that's like. By accusing these people of insurrection for asking questions about electors, by comparing them to Confederate soldiers, Merrick Garland's DOJ plans to disenfranchise them, if not jail them. Really? So prohibit people from participating in American politics in the name of democracy. And this is frightening. And to me, that's why I let off with it. Because, Jason, we're at a very dangerous point in this country. Do you agree? I'm fearful that we've passed it, Lee. I think it's too late. I think we're now, you know, we're out the door of the plane. And we forgot the parachute and everybody's falling right now. I, I hope we can reverse this. But, I mean, again, when people are 
you know, it's one thing when you're getting kicked off of Twitter and these other social media platforms, but I mean, when they are criminalizing this and, you know, and by the way, this has been going on with me for years, trying to get me into court over things that I've said so that sanctions can be had against me. And I mean, you know what's going on, but they're, and Alex Jones is having a trial today that could ruin him. And we'll talk about Alex later. We have a clip where Tucker pointed out that Alex sold the most books in the country last week. You would think that selling the most books makes you a bestseller, right? You'd think, yeah, but they didn't do it. Al contraire. <laughs> Al contraire. Is not, because Alex Jones can't have a bestseller. But however, let me point out, people are finding out, and Alex Jones, in fact, the New York Times may deny it, and they may ignore it. But guess what? The people still have it, and they're reading yeah. it. Yeah. So I would say, we, we, you know, it, it ain't over till it's over. Yeah. So it's very dangerous yeah. right now, but there's still people, and more people than ever, know the truth. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I meant to say, Lee, was that it feels like for so long people have been laughing about corruption in this country, laughing about, oh, you know, this person got off, nothing happened. Hillary Clinton did this, nothing happened. Epstein died, nothing happened. Ah, ha, 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 ha. So many people just accepted that as like a natural form of corruption that's okay. And we're just, we're over the peak now. We're on the downslope where the FBI can do this. And if you're Alex Jones, if you're you know, anybody who supports Trump, if you were in the city of Washington, D.C. on January 6th, you are a person who should be put in jail without a trial. They don't mind if you get beaten until you know somebody lost an eye in the D.C. jail. There's another guy who's got celiac disease, who's lost 40 or 50 pounds, has been very unhealthy, he's been beaten up by gang members. I mean, this is torture. This is as bad or worse than anything that they allude to as far as the former Soviet Union and communist China. I mean, this is the worst you could do as far as human rights violations. And let me point out the the small bit of activism I've been doing. Have you seen any pictures? I know you, you were kicked off Twitter as well. Yeah. But have you seen yeah. any of the pictures of me in my lawn chair holding up my did, impeach yeah. Biden sign? I did see that. I like that. Right. Now, let me point out, I don't think it's going to cause it, obviously. But still, yeah. my idea is like any... You know, when you see advertising for Coke and it just says Coca-Cola. Yeah. Right. Right. What effect does that have on you? I mean, Uh, I forget the name of it. Yeah, I forget the name of it, but it's not saying like, hey, go buy Coca-Cola now and save five dollars. It's not a call to action. It's just this thing that's designed to kind of like put it in your brain and associate it with something or other. Good way to put it, Jason. It gets it in your head. Right. Yeah. So yeah. my idea, I live on one of the busiest streets in the state of South Dakota. Mm. I live right on it. And also, mm-hmm. an old man sitting out in a lawn chair is good for my <laughs> vitamin D. That's because true, actually. You, you, no, I'm serious. You, you know, I am the too. you got to get sun. You have to. You must. And by the way, my apartment is lit like a strip club. It's very dark. <laughs> And I use lots of blues and purples. So yep. that's, you know, that's the equivalent. But 
and I like it dark. But mm-hmm. going sitting out there, I do it for about an hour. I bring a speaker out and crank up some dead. And I just sit out there and hold my sign up. And all I'm trying to do is get that idea in people's heads. So hundreds of people are going by and saying, impeach Biden. What's that about? Does that make sense? Well, you know what it reminds me of? Remember in Forrest Gump where he's like, I'll just start it running. And then suddenly at the end, there's like a crowd of people following him and it just sort of gains a following. Yes. And being able to post it on Twitter means it serves a double duty. Yeah. In in other words, however many, and it is hundreds of people. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of people. Uh, It's a very, for South Dakota, a very busy street. And I also hashtag it now and everything. So it's my small bit of activism and getting vitamin D. Yeah. You could have a whole new area here, Lee, in activism. We just sit there, but you're still an activist. <laughs> now, speaking of Twitter, did you see oh. Mudge? Oh, yeah. Test right I did. Today? I hung on every word, Lee. That was a hell of a thing. So tell Twitter's us what dead. you thought, Jackson Govern. Twitter is so dead man walking, it's unbelievable. I think Parag Agrawal and many executives going back to the advent of the platform are going to have to answer questions because basically what Mudge said, I don't really like calling people by their social media hacker names, but what Peter Zatko said was that uh, it is so inept with security that it's essentially criminally negligent that there are foreign operatives from at least three different countries. I believe he named India, Saudi Arabia, and China. We knew about Saudi Arabia because Gina Haspel went to speak with Abdul Aziz in about 2018 or 19. And then a week or two ago, a Saudi national living in the United States was uh, convicted of having done this. And Twitter just got fined $150 million, which they rightly pointed out, Twitter and companies like it, they just take these fines as the operating cost of doing business. So if you can pay $150 million to break the law and then influence who becomes the president of the United States, I bet you have a long line of people who want to invest in something where you can pay $150 million to influence the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. And I think that George Soros and Al-Walid bin Talal are two of them. And did you see that Twitter's board today approved Elon Musk's takeover bid? Right. And so, see, what's happening, Lee, is I believe that Twitter was either conceived of as or very immediately after its conception turned into a social engineering tool that was always intended to have this type of political influence. And I think that's why Al-Walid got involved in investing. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were conversations where they said, look, we're going to knowingly do this. And then the FTC, the SEC, whatever. We'll go in there, we'll say we're sorry, we'll pay the fines, but we'll have the millions and we'll have gone public and we'll have done what we need to do and we don't care about fines. And I believe that Twitter set this stuff up on purpose. I mean, when you start asking someone like, why? It's exactly like Hillary Clinton's server. Oh, whoops, it was on an unencrypted you know, Mac computer in her house, an Apple computer that wasn't designed to be a server, didn't have the types of security protocols in place. She left the door wide open. And I mean, that's either you're so stupid that you want the stuff to be stolen 
or you're providing plausible deniability to the person that's stealing it for you. Uh, oh, yes. You think it's possible it was a dead drop? I think the Twitter was set up to enable the presidency of Barack Obama and help him in a variety of ways. And a multitude of other functions have sprung from that well. And I say this because, as you know, I've been sued by the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. Their current president and CEO is a guy named Adam Sharp, who worked at Twitter from 2010 to 2016 and was an extremely influential executive there. Barack Obama's Twitter town hall, the first time a U.S. president ever communicated with the public through Twitter, that was Adam Sharp's brainchild. And after the huge success of that, his star rose at Twitter. He was tasked with uh, verifying the identity, providing the blue check to every member of the U.S. government that had a Twitter account. I, I forgot the most important part. Do you know when the Twitter account at Barack Obama was created? I do not. I believe it was March 2007, which is only one year after Twitter was created. Elon Musk wasn't on there until 2009. Bill Gates wasn't on there until 2010. I find it implausible that two individuals who have their fingers on the pulse of the Silicon Valley venture capital world, I find it implausible that they would know about Twitter so much later than a self-described Luddite lawyer who was busy working in the Senate, where Adam Sharp, the current CEO of Natas, the former head of news, elections, and politics at Twitter, so, he so was working Jason, in the Senate. Let me correct what you just said. I'm not, yeah. I might be correcting you wrong. So, are you saying mm. you find it implausible that Barack Obama knew it before or that Elon Musk knew it after? I just think that the notion this, this that is a Barack Obama. There. The notion that Barack Obama would know about Twitter before Elon Musk or Bill Gates is odd to me. And it seems to me, and it even says in The Atlantic in 2013, they have an article called You're Not Really Following at Barack Obama. And it goes through the history of that account, which has been transferred from a senator to a uh, private individual to a, uh, a campaign uh, for president to a nonprofit and and at Barack Obama currently has something like 131 million Twitter followers. It's the most followed Twitter account in the world. That's an item of value. And you can't just give it around to for-profit entities, not-for-profit entities, private individuals. There's got to be some accounting for that. And there's so much loosey-goosey stuff going on at Twitter with money, national security, the hiring of foreign spies, giving them access. They said they have access not just to your phone number your email address and your tweets, but real-time location data, they could drone strike you if you have Twitter on your phone. So I'm hoping they aren't calling a dr drone strike on Sioux Falls. I deleted mine. Yeah, I deleted mine. <laughs> so Jason, but I'm being seriously, this guy is a real serious problem. And I think there are very serious criminal acts that have been carried out by executives of Twitter. And it's going to come to the surface, I think. By the way, I'm going to keep saying much because I can say much. So we'll get to mo what much said to Senate after we talk to Ian Schilling because he's online. Sure. Let's take a sure. short break now. And when we come back, live from London, no offense to Queen, live from London, Ian Schilling on The Backstory.
are back and proud to be on the radio in the capital of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C., 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now from England is a great friend of the show, a geopolitical analyst, and a nice guy, Ian Schilling. Hey, Ian, how are you? Uh, hi, I'm great. Great to talk again. Great hi, to talk to you. Now, you've been on the show dozens of times, but this is an issue that I have no idea where you're going to come down. Do you have any mixed feelings? I'm sure, I'm sure I know you don't like Empire, right? That's fair to say, correct? Yep. So, given that, it's, it strikes me that the death of Queen Elizabeth, for some people, it it's she's been such a cultural force for 70 years in England, and it's a symbol of stability that some people have mixed feelings about that, even though they oppose monarchy. Where do you come down on the death of Queen Elizabeth, Ian? Oh, well, I mean, really, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, it was going to happen fairly soon, whatever happened, wasn't it? The problem is that Prince Charles is now the monarch, and he's terrible. He's got all links to the WEF, World Economic Forum, and he's climate crazy and green green garbage and whatever else. So he's going to make things a hell of a lot worse. So King Charles is essentially the Duke of Davos, correct? <laughs> well, he's totally in bed with them, yes. But what about Jimmy Savile, yes. his friendship with Jimmy Savile? Oh, well, yeah, Jimmy Savile as well, Peter Files, yeah. And his brother is Prince Andrew. And that takes us to a topic that I don't have mixed feelings about. I've seen the Bobbies, the British police, shut down. There was a one kid who yelled at Prince Andrew. And I can see where yelling during a funeral procession is not going to go over well with the cops. But I saw a person also standing outside with a sign that said no monarchy. And the British police seem to be cracking down on any dissent. Have you seen that, Ian? Yeah, yeah, they are. They're arresting people for just silently holding up a sign saying abolish the monarchy or not my king or, or whatever. They're just standing there in the crowd holding up a sign. And they're arresting people. It's supposed to be a free country with freedom of speech. <laughs> you get arrested if you hold up a sign. What is the nature of freedom of speech in England? Because remember, Harry came over here and said he thought the First Amendment was ridiculous. Uh, I think well, he's ridiculous. I mean, there is no, there's no real freedom of speech in England because you'll get arrested for a hate crime if you say something that's not approved. So loads of people have been arrested for so-called hate crimes or posting something on social media, and then the cops come round to their house and threaten them. Threaten them with being prosecuted for a hate crime. You know, one of the things that came up with regard to what you're saying, Ian, today during the Senate testimony of the former security director at Twitter was that 80% of Twitter employees are from countries outside of the United States. So the notion of punishing someone, as you say, for hate speech to them is normal and natural. And this First Amendment where you can say something hateful and it's your right to do it. They, they don't understand that that's yeah, the way and, it I mean, works. Twitter is all, all, all only going to employ sort of woke people, aren't they? Social studies majors or gender studies majors or whatever else. They're just brainwashed idiots that don't know right. anything. So yeah. you know, what, they, what they think is, yeah. is hate speech or whatever. It's just, just facts. 
Well, or some of it is, half of it is. Now, also, it's it's crazy. Now, this is something that Jason and I have talked about a couple of days ago, but I haven't talked to you about it. I only found out about this about two days ago. So, are you familiar with the Notting Hill Carnival, Ian? Yes, happens every year. Okay, so there were stabbing deaths and multiple sexual assaults at this thing, the Notting Hill Carnival. And I hadn't heard anything about it. And then when I found out about it, the press, it seems to me, is burying the story. People in America, because Jason, you said we had something similar in the U.S. in New York, right? They have the West India Day Parade, which looks like that, people in those costumes. I guess it's from the same whatever. Explain to people what the Notting Hill Carnival was and what happened this year. But it's been, it, the Notting Hill Carnival has has been held on the last weekend of August for for thirty forty years maybe longer, right? And it was I mean it's originally just the Caribbean people who came from Jamaica and Barbados or whatever to the UK in the fifties and sixties, right? And they they played their their um, their drums, what do you call it, on the uh, oil barrels, their drums and that, dressed up in costumes. The kettle drums, kettle drums, yeah. Sort of like Mardi Gras, Yeah, right? and I mean, I mean like previously, previously, there was no trouble. I mean, 20 years ago, there, I, I never heard of any trouble at the Notting Hill Carnival. But in the last 10, 15 years, there's been trouble every year that there's been, there's been, you know, muggings, assaults, robberies, sexual assaults and whatever else. And it's the same this year. But it's all played down in the media. They don't report it. Huh? Like black, black on black violence or black on white violence is all played down in the media. They don't report on it much, do they? Just like in America, they don't report it and they play it down, don't they? And that's why I was surprised that no one Absolutely. like Fox or whatever covered it. At, there was no coverage in the U.S. except Vogue said it's back in style. Yeah, it was great. Right. right. So, has I've been up to Notting Hill before. Well, Lee, we should mention. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. That's the same magazine that was promoting Zelensky and his <laughs> wife like they were fashion yeah. right a month ago. That's exactly, and I think it's connected because the Notting Hill Carnival it seems to me. There's too many people in too small a space, right? There's no, no, a lot not, of not, not really. No, I don't think that's the reason. The reason is that there's a lot of criminal elements that's going to take advantage of it. Right? So, I mean, it's, it's, it, they had just as big parades 20 years ago, but there was there was none of this violence and, and associated with it. But, I mean, the amount of drugs that are dealt at the carnival and whatever else, people, people you know, get stoned and high on whatever while they're at it, right? Because they, they, they're less strict on dealing with the drugs. So there's more people stoned. But, Ian, isn't that nothing new? People have been getting stoned and drunk at parks and parties and festivals forever. It's that we've got this worldwide defund the police kind of idea where people are demoralizing the cops. Yeah, the police like are soft. They can do whatever they want. They? So they think they can get away with it, see? Whereas past, they couldn't, right? Yeah, people smoke dope and whatever. It's the 60s and whatever, aren't they? But, but you know, the cops, the cops don't right. crack down on it like they used to. 
Right, and they they let it all go because they they right. fighting against called racist, don't they? If they arrest arrest any black person, they get they yeah. they're being accused of being racist. Whereas well, you know, if somebody's assaulting someone or yeah. sexually assaulting them or whatever, then they should get arrested. Whatever their skin colour is, it's a crime. Yeah, it, was that a big story in in London, or was it buried in London too? Well, it was reported a little bit, but it, it certainly wasn't any anywhere on any front pages or anything. It was, you know, buried, buried, buried on you know page sixteen or twenty or whatever. Now, do you know what they have in in Notting Hill, Jason? And Ian, have you ever been to the American grocery store? Yes. Okay, so do you. It's what is that? No, an yeah, American Ian, grocery explain. store or the American grocery store. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the American grocery store. Explain oh, what no. that is, Dan. Okay. No, I don't no. know what that is. <laughs> it's a place in Notting Hill, forgive me, that oh, uh, sells yeah. American groceries that you can't get at British grocery stores. So it's ah. all stuff like whatever, you know, Hamburger Helper or Velveeta or stuff that they don't have. It's a crap, basically. Yeah, it shows the greatness yeah. of American Processed cuisine. food. But, it's, <laughs> but I went there, of course. Uh. So, now, speaking of uh, stuff in the news, Liz Truss, she is proposing a price cap on energy. Now, what is that proposal? And is it as stupid as I think it is? Yeah, it's pretty stupid. She's proposing to cap household electricity and energy bills by whatever the amount that she's come up with, which is going to cost £170 billion at today's prices, right? Which is equivalent to a trillion dollars if it was in America, because America's economy is about six times as large. So, so it's equivalent of a trillion dollars worth of subsidies by the government. So she's going to print £170 billion Right, in excess printing, money printing, which is the cause of inflation in the first place, because the UK government printed printed With three hundred and fifty billion, four hundred billion of extra debt to cover all the lockdown expenses and the and buying the vaccines and whatever else. So they've they wasted three hundred and fifty billion pounds on that, which is ten percent of the UK economy. Right, it's 10% of GDP and printed all that money. Same, same as they did in America. About the same. And that's caused inflation. So she's now going to print another £170 billion and cause more inflation. Right, because it won't address the primary issue, which is lack of supply. Right, the reason that electricity and gas prices are high is because there's a lack of supply. Right? It doesn't do anything to increase supply, and it, it will it, it will stop a reduction in demand. Right? If pe people get their electricity bill suddenly double or triple, then they're going to save electricity. Oh, right? They're yeah. going to try and reduce their energy consumption. Now they haven't got any incentive to do that. See, because they, their their energy bills mm. won't have gone up so much. So. There's going to be the same amount of demand, and she's going to subsidise it. And so where are the energy prices going to go? Are they going to go higher than they are now or lower? Well, they're probably going to go higher, aren't they? Unless suddenly, you know, there's a deal with Russia, which is which is which <laughs> would be a miracle. That's an excellent point. If somebody's paying your bill, you're just going to sit there in well, the air conditioning air and conditioning. soak it up. It'd be the heaters on. It'd be the winter, yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. All the heat, whatever it is, you're going to use yeah. all your electricity and not care. But you're right. If something is more expensive, you use it less. This is what they're doing all over the world. And isn't there also going to be some kind of one-time fairly large cost to reconfigure all the currency to have Charles oh, on well, it now? Yeah. I mean, but that's Elizabeth? sort of peanuts, isn't it? They, they, have to, they have to print new banknotes and whatever. I, I mean, mean, the I cost of designing new banknotes is trivial, isn't it? And they print new banknotes all the time, so they've gradually replaced know. the notes that got Queen Elizabeth on them with Prince Charles. So, I mean, that's... that's but loads of things will have to be changed. The stamps will have to be changed. The postage stamps, the uh, the uh, notes, the currency will have to be changed. All the, all the uh, post boxes. We have post boxes over here, and they've all got the monarch's name on it. Uh, we, we put all... Not, not like in America, where you post it outside your door. You have to post it in a post box in the UK, and they've all got the monarch's name on it. So all those will have to be changed. <laughs> Which hasn't been done for 70 years. So it seems like there's some one-time... It seems like some, yeah, one-time fee that will, well, will occur be, sometimes. But, I mean, it's, fair, it's pretty trivial against 170 billion. You know, we might be talking 20, 30, 40 million to change right. all these things. But, I mean, that's trivial. Now, realistically, a lot of people in England have affection for the Queen. Do you think any of that affection is going to transfer to King Charles? Uh, it seems to me... Like he's unpopular with people. Am I right well, on that? He was extremely unpopular beforehand. He's now, he's at all the press and, and Prince Charles, or no, King Charles, is doing a PR campaign to try and ingratiate him, him into the public's perception. That's why there's been wall-to-wall propaganda on the royal family for the last few days. Absolute wall-to-wall. They haven't reported any other news. They just reported about the royal family and the funeral arrangements and whatever else. We've been wall-to-wall covers. Four-hour news specials just on the, on the royal family. Right? They're trying to, trying to change the public's perception because everybody, or almost everybody in the UK, thinks that Charles is worse than Elizabeth. Right. So they're now doing a PR campaign and propaganda to try try and get the public to support him. Now, I do you think this is going to affect all the situation with Ireland? Because you know who's in charge in Ireland, right, Jason? Politically, politically. Uh, <laughs> Sinn- Irish people, Sinn Fein, right, right. Right. I don't know who that is. Right, Ian? I should know. Yeah, yeah Irish. It's the political party of the IRA. And yes. they've now got the majority of seats in Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, haven't they? Oh, they're going to head in the polls in Southern Ireland. And they really don't like the huh. monarchy, right? Oh, no, they hate them. They hate them. That's why yeah. all the Sinn Féin MPs, you know, there's... A, there's Four or six of them have never sat in the House of Commons because they refuse to swear the oath of loyalty to the monarch. Right? They ne- they refuse to swear the, the oath, so they couldn't sit in Parliament. So they, you know, they've been elected for the, since the 1980s or something, and uh, none of them have ever sat in in the House of Commons because they refuse to uh, swear an oath of loyalty. So, do you think that the situation with Charles being in charge is going to affect? Because I see the situation... Guess where Prince Charles went for his first trip after becoming monarch? Where did he go? Northern Ireland. Right. 
Yeah. They 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 recognise it might be a problem. See, so he the first trip that he made <laughs> was to Northern Ireland. And did that go over well? Oh well, I, I I don't know because the media coverage is so appalling. I don't know if anybody was shouting insults at him or not because they won't show it. <laughs> Do you think the UK broadly is close to possibly breaking up? If because I think in Scotland, especially if Ireland gains independence, Scotland's next, right, Ian? Well, uh, you've got the, the Scottish independents, Nicola Sturgeon, don't actually want to be independent. They're doing everything they can to prevent Scotland becoming independent. She's a, she's a big con artist, Nicola Sturgeon. She's absolutely conned all the Scottish people. So the, the people who really do want Scottish independence are all broken away from the Scottish National Party, who their declared aim from the start was Scottish independence. So they've now formed an ALBA party, I think it is, in Scotland, that are all the breakaway SNP people because the SNP don't want independence. And there's now an argument about when would they be allowed to have the next referendum on independence. It looks a long way off. I don't think it's going to happen for foreseeable future. And Scotland, yeah. Scotland was bankrupt, right? But now with the oil price being so high, right, now it might become viable again. Right? When oil was $40 a barrel, Scotland was just totally bankrupt. It could never survive on its own without subsidies from England. Right? But if if the oil price is consistently $100 a barrel, it might change it. They might start developing the North Sea oil again and stuff like that, and it might become viable again. I don't know. So we could see changes in the UK, Jason. That's what I'm saying. It could be long term, but it seems to me like it's a possible situation because Sinn Féin being in charge of Ireland, that's a big deal, right, Ian? I mean, they're the ancestors of the terrorists, IRA terrorists. Yeah, that's what I remember from when I was a kid. There were all those Tom Clancy movies where the IRA was trying to bomb the royals, and then that just all sort of stopped. Yeah, they stopped with a Good Friday agreement, didn't they, in 1999, that they signed a truce. Forgive my ignorance, but I think probably a lot of people from 1999 are still <laughs> yeah. unhappy about it. Oh, well, I mean, certainly a lot of people in Ireland aren't happy with the current arrangements. So. And Jason, Jason Goodman, our co-host, guest host today, do you have any questions or comments for Ian Schilling in London? Well, Ian, what do you think about, see, there's, you, you mentioned Twitter and the royal family. Well, we were talking about Twitter, sorry, before you came on, and you were talking about all the news about the royal family. There's been an alarming campaign on Twitter surrounding Meghan Markle, a, a sort of a try to improve the you know perception of her because so many people dislike her. Could you tell me, do you do you think it's true that most people dislike her and why do you oh, think that it's is? It's definitely the majority disliked her. I mean, but that's another another wing of all the mass propaganda campaigns that, that is now going on, that Harry and Meghan Markle are now being reconciled with the royal family and they've done walkabouts at the uh, funeral processions or whatever together. So there's a major propaganda campaign now that says that there's not a split between them. Right, so I don't know whether it's real or it's just propaganda or whatever. But they, yeah, they, they, they basically before, 
before the Queen died, they refused to speak to each other. They wouldn't be in the same room together, right? And now they're walking around together and, certain, yeah. you know, shaking hands and whatever. In the U.S., the campaign, it's mostly being promoted in a way that attributes the dislike of Meghan Markle <laughs> to racism. But my opinion is, and I don't know, but I think that most British people oppose her because she's American and previously was married to somebody else. Not necessarily. And she wasn't married she's mixed to race. someone else, was she? I don't think that's true. She? Yeah, she's divorced. She's divorced. No. Uh, it wasn't based no. on race. It was the fact that she was dividing the royal family, right? And she was, she was, you know, telling Prince Harry what to do, and they moved to America and whatever else. She, she caused a split. I mean, there's never been a split like that in the royal family before that she caused, and she was directly responsible for it. So that's why British people didn't like her. It's not nothing to do with the colour of her skin. It's her behaviour and attitude. Now, Jason, yeah. I, I, I would say... And one final thing I would ask about... I would say Meghan Markle is the American grocery store of royal. Does that make sense? Uh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> correct. I agree with that. But the final question I would ask, Ian, I, maybe this falls into the category of conspiracy theory, but there was, I think it was like her butler or her best friend or something... Didn't Diana write a book or give a note to somebody that said that she thought that Prince Charles was planning to sabotage yeah, oh, her car and that. kill her in that a car was accident? in the mainstream press. Diana said that a few months before her death. She said specifically, they are planning an accident in my car so Charles can marry again. Right? And this was, this was, I know, six or nine months before she died. That's pretty darn callous to murder the mother of your children because you want to yeah, marry well, some but they ugly didn't old want bad, Diana no to have to a baby queen. from uh, what who was it? Dodie Fayette, did they? Dodie. Right? They couldn't stand that the thought of that. So that was one yeah. reason to get rid of her. And the other reason was that Charles wanted to marry Camilla, who was his longtime lover, for <laughs> way, way back. And some say that Diana was aware of what Jimmy Savile was up to and she wasn't happy about it and maybe going to uh, talk about it. I don't know about that one. But, I mean, Diana did all sorts of things that the establishment didn't like, like, you know, campaigning against landmines in ex-colonial countries, didn't she? She was campaigning to clear up the mines that all laid in Africa and wherever. So she, she did things that were against establishment interests and against the uh, corporate interests and war interests and whatever else. So they didn't like it for that. Now, Ian, we've seen protests about coming down on the side of neutrality on the Russian-Ukrainian uh, war. And people in Czechoslovakia, France, Germany, coming out and protesting. Yes. I'm going to tie that into what we talked about earlier. Do you think part of the reason for the crackdown on people outside Buckingham Palace, do you think that's showing don't protest anything or we'll don't crack down on you? Don't protest against the system, yes. Yes. That's do you, part of the reason, think, yes. Don't protest against the system. We'll arrest you. Yeah. Because they know... Yep. Worldwide compliance. Have you heard anything about what the weather's supposed to be like this winter? I don't last know what's going on. Last year was mild. Yeah. And they seem to be hoping for another mild winter as a, a strategy. But it's it's supposed to be a cold winter. They know if it's a cold winter in Europe, uh, 
They're in deep, deep trouble, yes. Right. So, so you do think hope is generally a poor strategy. So you do think my conspiracy theory that they're trying to send a message by cracking down on protesting is trying to send a message to the people of the UK. Do yeah, you? well, there's been stories around the police, the police chiefs have been warning that if something's not done, there's a risk of social unrest over the winter because of huge energy bills and whatever. So the police chiefs in in various places in England have been warning, well, if something's not done, we're going to be in trouble. There's going to be riots like there was in 2011, the London riots, when they started burning buildings and stuff. So, yeah, they're obviously worried about it. And the protests are growing in in European countries. Like you say, Czechoslovakia had 70,800 or 100,000 people protesting in the centre of Prague against NATO and and the policy of supporting Ukraine, Ukraine in the war. And they wanted a neutral policy and to, to get Russian gas so to stop all the supply shortages. Right? And there's, there's protests in Germany against against NATO. I mean, that's unheard of. Protests in Germany against NATO. That's, I, I've never seen those before, before this year. And did and you see protests in France Germany's... and there's protests in Spain, so it's going to build up. And did you see, and, and Jason, did you see that Germany said they're going to go ahead and shut down three nuclear power plants at the end of the year? Whoa. Did not and see that. Why are they doing that? In coal-fired power stations, to replace them. I mean, how much sense does this wow. make? Well, especially since that's a Green Party person yeah, pushing the Green that. Party is shutting down nuclear power stations and opening up coal, reopening coal-fired power this, stations. I mean, this, it's insane. See, this is an important point. This is an important point. This is an important point. When we when we hear all these climate activists, the Greta Thunbergs, and on up. They're talking about carbon, but there are so many other things that are put into the environment other than carbon that are harmful to humans that they're not talking about. For instance, when you burn coal, you put into the water, the air, the atmosphere, mercury, which is terribly toxic and its effects on human health are largely unknown. And, you know, when you go and ask a doctor what causes cancer, what causes Alzheimer, what they don't know. So this this insane laser beam focus on carbon without looking at other pollutants that are generated by some of these other things is an absolutely stupid approach, yeah, in my it, opinion. It, of course it is. It's absolutely insane. But the system, the system doesn't want healthy people, does it? Because the drugs companies won't, don't make any money out of healthy people. So they don't mind that the population is getting low-level poisoned. Which is what 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 pollution is, isn't it? Slow level poisoning. So people are going to be more absolutely uh, less healthy. They're going to need more medical interventions, and it's going to cost more money from the medical industry and the right. drugs companies, isn't it? But that's all part of the part of the business model, isn't it? Because these are the mega corporations that have bought all the politicians. They got so many billions in profits, they can just buy all the politicians they want and all the media they want, which is what they've done, isn't it? They bought all the media, the media all bought off, and the politicians all bought off. And then they can carry on doing whatever crimes they choose and just pay the fines. Yeah, they the still have plenty the, of money left over. It's fine. Oh, we made fifty billion for this vaccine. Oh, we got a fine. How much was the fine? Five billion. So we made forty-five billion. Wee! <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. No one went to jail.
I mean, they start, need to start locking these people up for 20 That's years. Exactly that right. would stop it. If they started locking up the pharma execs for 20 mm-hmm. or 30 years, that would stop it, wouldn't it? We just we just recently got an announcement from Eric Adams. You know, obviously Sunday was the 21st anniversary of September 11th, and there's a whole movement of, of first responders and people who are now sick and have died in the subsequent years from cancer and a variety of exotic diseases that come from the burning chemicals and exposure to the toxic air. They just announced that New York City will not release this air report until they can get indemnity from... <laughs> civil lawsuits. (laughs) Sounds like it's not a good report. Another cover-up. And does this sound, Ian, like fake environmentalism, like pretending to be in favor of helping the environment, which a lot of people might be in favor of, but they use it as a a subtext for more power and control. Do you see it that way? Definitely. Everything is used. Everything is used for either more power control or to divide the population 50-50, isn't it? Now, we're out of time, Ian. Ian Schilling, fantastic appearance as usual. Have a good night, Ian. And we take a short break, Jason, and come back and talk about more stuff on The Backstory. live from the Empire Lies on the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. We're joined by special guest co-host Jason Goodman on Truth Tuesday here on The Backstory. So Jason, great appearance by Ian, right? Yeah. Is it, I have a question, Lee. Isn't a shilling some denomination yes. of money in England? But I think it might be spelled slightly differently. I'm not sure. But yeah. Ah. And I don't know what a shilling is. So, I think it's I think it's some Some percentage of a pound. I think it's smaller than a pound. Yeah. But but great appearance. Thank you to Ian Schilling. Now, coming up this hour, we have Naboja Malik a great reporter, and we'll be talking about what's going on with Armenia. So, what do you think of the fact that the government in England is shutting down protests? And the, we, we talked before, the government of the U.S., I think they're trying to send a message to people, right? Do you think so, Jason? I think it's beyond that. The message, they don't need to send a message. I think what they're saying is we've taken over. We don't care about the Constitution, the law, or facts. We are going to stipulate a reality which says that inflation is going down, and Joe Biden is doing a great job, and the border is secure, and Donald Trump is a criminal, and anybody who supports him is a criminal, and we're just going to put you in jail, and if you were in the city of Washington, D.C. on January 6th, you are going to jail. And Jason, take us to the boom. This is the backstory. And so we have Al Killer coming on in a second. Before I bring him on, let me set up a question oh, with you. And Al Killer might want to tackle this one too. You said you deleted Twitter from your device. Sure. Let me point out, I think that's 
respectfully dumb. Yeah. Do you know who never backs off using technology? The, our enemies. Our enemies, the bad guys, never back off right. that. And I, I'm not worried. Are you legit worried that you're going to be drone striked, J- Jason? No, I just deleted it because I can't use it anymore, and it's just sitting there okay. taking up space on my phone, and why let them track me if I can't even because use the software? Do you think people should... I think people sometimes... I think the fear that they're trying to put into people, the one way you can fight against it is by not acting afraid. Is That's another reason I set it out with my sign every day. I'm not afraid, and I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not afraid... I mean, listen, I'm hopeful that what happened today with Peter, uh, with Mudge, will lead to people at Twitter being prosecuted, the stock falling to about 10. I hope Elon Musk buys it, reconfigures it, makes it a proper company and re-enables my account. I'll turn it on right away. I know all these things are tracking me. I don't really care. I just don't want it there because I can't even use it. And I mean, again, I, no, I in, think in there your are case, because you've been people in, involved deleted, with Twitter. Yeah, that makes sense, Jason. Right. And I think there are specific people at Twitter, Adam Sharp, the former head of news, government and elections. He is a known associate of Barack Obama, and he has sued me, my company, I believe wrongfully using tax exempt funds. And I believe he has a personal interest in bad things happening to me because he's done that in the past. So to whatever extent, like what What Peter said today is that almost any employee at Twitter can access almost anything within Twitter. Who knows? Clip from Mudge, and I'll probably play that before we bring on Al Killer. But let me say this too: that uh, uh, I know some people. You know what got me is the people who are freaking out about QR codes, as though QR codes are dangerous technology. QR codes aren't a problem. Mm. Just because they were a lot Who of was freaking out about that. What? And and you, I'll remind you of something. Remember a couple of years ago, a lot of people were freaking out about five G. You right? y'all still. But now we're in a position where a lot of people have had five G for a long time, right? And it's not been. It's equivalent to me of Y two K. Freaking out about Y two K. Nothing bad happened. What bad has happened specifically because of 5G? No, no one's pointed out. Anything. I tell you, it's exactly like this, Lee. I, I was sitting in a conference in Philadelphia and Max Egan was talking about the dangers of 5G. And I was like, I don't know if this guy's right or wrong. Then he went outside and smoked a cigarette. So here he is telling me that the cell phone is going to give you cancer, but he's smoking a cigarette. So I discounted what he had to say because I don't like to take advice from people who do contradictory things like that. I have a newsflash. You know, the automobile, if you sit inside your garage with your automobile running and you stay there long enough, you're going to die. If you turn it on and start it going 50 miles an hour and stand in front of it, you're going to die. If a phased array antenna points at your skull with high intensity and shoots a beam at you, I believe it could hurt you. But like any technology, if it's used properly, it's safe. Every single thing we do has a certain risk associated with it. And that, that was basically how I sort of approached 5G. Until I see something or some evidence that 
causes me to believe it's dangerous. I think it's just another technology that's dangerous. Being, and being able to download things faster seems good to me. I don't know. I agree. And here's the thing that people don't get, Lee. I've told this story before, and you'll appreciate this. So a lot of people say, what, why do you need it to be faster? You just download a movie faster? When I was 13 and buying Lee Stranahan videos to learn how to animate Lightwave 3D, the Amiga 2000 came out. And I was like, oh, Dad, I got to get yeah. a new computer. And he said, what the hell are you talking about? I just got you this computer. And I said, right, but this new one is faster. And he was like, faster, where the hell are you going? You're not getting a new computer. And what he didn't understand, and what I know you understand, but the average layperson, particularly in 1988, did not get that as computer processing power and bandwidth and storage and network capacity, as those things expand, it's not just about going faster and storing more. It enables new applications that we cannot envision yet. And it is important. So, as a simple example, Jason, you and I can remember when the idea of your computer playing back real time video was uh, like a, a science fiction. You didn't believe it when you yeah. first heard it. Yeah. And quick exactly. Time, remember quick time when I it saw first came the, out? The first thing I saw, Lee, let me take it back before yes. that. You're going to like this. I snuck into New York City, rode on the Long Island Railroad when I was 16 to go to the first Amiga World show where Tim Jennison yes. was there showing, this was when the video toaster was supposed to be like DigiView yeah. 2. And it was this thing stuck onto an Amiga 500 and they were playing a video clip from Back to the Future 3, which was like the new movie at that time. And they had video playing on this computer screen and it was like, oh my God, how is that happening? And it's probably in like 256. 56 colors, maybe 65,000. Probably 65,000, I think, because they had that hold and modify thing. We're getting super geeky here, but it was Tim Jennison and maybe Paul. It, it would have been, yeah. So people need, you, you're exactly right. Yeah. It enables you to do new things. And talking to someone over video was a science fiction idea. It was impossible. So faster bandwidth. Yep. Let me put it like this. People don't realize they want it. They want it. So they let's just play don't realize the clip. It. Then I'll bring on Al Killer. Let's play what Mudge, and I'm using that name because it's easy to say for me. Zatko is I'm, the, it's I'm a I'm not going to try yeah. it, Jason. <laughs> so I had trouble j just there with Jason. So Mudge, may I call you Mudge? I appreciate that. So let's play it. Mudge it is. Hit it, Mudge. <laughs> that these 4,000-ish employees would have had access to live user data all, data all over Twitter. They could access individual users' personal information, including their live data. Have I got that right? Yes, sir. If they, uh, so they would have access to the production environment. If they spent the time to meander around and look around, they would find that they could access these large troves of data. Including geolocation data? Did you testify to that earlier today? Uh, that the, I know that Twitter has IP locations uh, and that they do use uh, geolocation uh, services uh, based upon IP addresses. Wow, 4,000 employees with access to that data. That's extraordinary. So those employees would be in a position then, if they wanted to, to get this information and, and dox Twitter users. Is that fair to say? That is a concern of mine, sir, yes. Wow. Um, that's a significant concern. 4,000 people with the ability to dox individual users who or pick up the phone. Or to 
hand that data over to the FBI, assuming or someone worse. I think someone worse, but okay. Well, I mean, the FBI wouldn't necessarily walk up to you on the street and stab no, you. No, but in they the might neck. throw you in the back of a van, and you're never seen from from again. Right? <laughs> That's True. what they do. True. True. I think. I think the FBI is more likely to gin up charges against you and try to use law enforcement against you. What I'm concerned about is geolocation, your real-time location data, your address. Yeah, that's bad. But where you are right now at 11 o'clock at night in the middle of New York City where some unknown person could come up to you and stab you in the neck and nobody even knows how they got that data because it's just some unknown employee at Twitter, that's dangerous. I've been approached by strangers on the street, Lee, who somehow, they don't know my name, they say, oh, you're that YouTube guy, I love your show. And I say, really, how did you recognize me from a block away from behind me? What's my name? They don't know. What's the name of the show? They don't know. That's happened twice. And I take it there were no cute Slava girls, right? No, no, no. One of them was a guy who I have reason, well, we won't go into it now, but they're dangerous Not people. Not the cute like. Slava girls. Because J- Jason, that's... An- that's not arbitrary. Send all those. Jason was married to a cute cyber girl at one point, correct? No. So, yes. So it's a yes. real world yes. example. Yes, I was. Now let's go to phones. 202-521-1320 is the number to call. And Owl Killer called that number. Owl Killer, how you doing? Welcome. Remember when I told you a year ago that cheaters always win? Mm. They always win. No. I, what do you think is doxing these people on, tw- on Twitter? They win elections. They win with the banks. They win with. They win at trial. Yeah. That's all it is. There's always win. So the and Twitter has some of the most vicious employees out of any company. I think worse than Facebook. How many times do they have to be caught on on video by Project Veritas saying, "Yeah, we're Marxists. Oh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's normal. Yeah, we're you know we're all like commies, dude." And how many times has Project Veritas caught them? And they are some of the most vicious, evil people. And, you know, what, what people don't get is that, you know, just because they hey, wear a little hey, tie-dye hey, t-shirt hey, hey, back doesn't up, mean pal. they won't rip your guts out of it. What are you talking about putting down tie-dye t-shirts? <laughs> I'm wearing my Owsley shirt today. The bear. <laughs> I said, just so, you're tell me you're <laughs> not talking about me with the tie-dye shirt thing. No, no, no. And you want, you want to laugh? Because... I don't have Twitter, but I do watch your show. Since they uh, took you off of yeah. YouTube, that's how I watch but, your show. <laughs> but we'll have no insulting of tie dyes here. You're you're describing my wardrobe, so go ahead, I'll call. Okay. So, um, we we can uh, delete those out. But a- anyway, nothing's going to happen to Twitter. Of course, they're using that technology to. Well, dock but wait, 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 wait a minute, Al Keller. Did you hear the Mudge testimony today? I did, but who's gonna, what, are, what are they going to do? I think gonna... Josh Hawley, they, I think they might introduce, you don't think Hawley will do anything? I mean, wasn't he the Attorney General of Missouri? He's a skilled lawyer, and he obviously has been all over 47 USC 230 for many, many years. What they were hinting at today was a um, kind of an amendment of it that would take into account, because they, they recognize that they don't want to stifle development on the Internet. But it's one thing to, you know, have a set of standards for prodigy in 1996, and it's another thing to find ourselves here almost 30 years later and look at how these companies have evolved. And the point that they were getting at is the Federal Trade Commission and these other bodies that exist are 
too antiquated to be able to deal with some of the issues that we're dealing with right now. And they're, you know, I don't know if more government regulation is the best answer, but I mean, when we have rampant cheating by billionaires, what, what can we do as individuals? No, Jason, I like Josh Howley, but he could howl at a full moon and nothing would happen. Maybe you're right. The best thing, only thing that, only thing that could happen. Yes. Section 230. You know, I'm not a lawyer, but I, you know, I can kind of understand language. They can have their protection, but they cannot modify content. Once you're, once you're in that game where you're modifying content, you're picking, again, you're picking winners and losers because their protection was if somebody posts something crazy, we don't want to be liable for it. It's, and that's it's, understandable. It's, no, it's more complicated than that. The language, see, this is, this is what lawyers love to do is they use this nuanced language so they can make it go any way they want. And you're sitting there saying, hey, that's not fair. And they're like, yeah, right. F you. Deal with it. No, but I think it's pretty clear that they cannot do what they're doing, that their protection is them being neutral. They cannot no, give one no, thing. that's not what it says. It, it's, that, it's that a corporation is considered a user or a provider of information, and an individual is considered a user and a provider of an information, of information. And no publisher of content, or, sorry, no user or provider can be treated as the publisher of content put there by another user or provider. Additionally, they're indemnified from lawsuits that they would traditionally be subjected to, even if the content is First Amendment protected. I mean, there is, I think, a valid legal argument to say this law cannot supersede the First Amendment of the Constitution, and they cannot have protection against violating the First Amendment of the Constitution. There needs to be some indemnity for things that are placed there by other people, because otherwise somebody who wants Twitter or anybody to get sued can just put po- someone could post a comment on your YouTube video and say, well, now you're liable for it because you don't have CDA 230. It needs to have a more fleshed out more nuanced language that understands what this technology is. Even technology experts in 1996 did not anticipate social media, did not anticipate the reach that it would have. Just like that story I just told Lee about hawking my dad for a new computer, people in 1996 could not anticipate the applications of these things. So I agree. The law is because now we so they need, need to change it because we got Ingrid online. But Alcalar, I got two questions for you. First off, and I'm very shallow, admittedly, but in those Project Veritas videos where they catch people at Twitter, have you seriously seen one of them wearing a tie dye shirt? I definitely saw a tie dye shirt. Not a shirt. It's not a tie dye crowd. This is the whole pronouns crowd. That's exactly crowd right. I've said before, I refuse to let. The, the woke left take over sex and drugs and rock and roll. I'm in favor of sex and drugs and rock and roll. Yeah, tie-dye, tie-dye people are still making grilled cheese for Grateful Dead concerts and maybe looking for fish. Uh, you need to get um, uh, Jay Dyer on, on your program. I think you guys, you guys would have a phenomenal interview. You know, Because I remember you were saying that, um, who was the band that you were saying was very anti-authoritarian? Uh, the Grateful Dead. He's got in one of his books. He's got information on how the Grateful Dead were used by the CIA to distribute acid all throughout the country. Wow! Well, and it's indisputable. At the time, the CIA controlled all the acid in the world. They bought up the entire supply from Swiss, Swiss, Switzerland. Forgive me, Switzerland. 
Sandoz. Sandoz. Exactly right. Is it Sandoz Labs, but, the company? Uh, as I yeah. pointed out, if they were trying for mind control with acid, it backfired in a lot of cases because a lot of people. Yeah. Right. Mind out of control. A lot of people achieved <laughs> deeper levels of spirituality and consciousness because of LSD. And that's been shown as well. So the attempt to control people backfired. Uh, but the other question, and I'm going to get this slightly wrong. There's a report last night that I think is the National Archives back in the 19th century had these giant skeletons. And they're really like, like human skeletons, but super giant. Did you say this, Jason? No, but that sounds that awesome. I want to see that. Buried them. Did you, they hid them? They destroyed them. What? No. Did you what? hear that, Owl Killer? Oh my God. No, I didn't. But Jason, there, Abraham Lincoln has a quote about giants. What? Really? That it was like well known in the 1800s yes. that there were giants in North and, America. Hmm. Well known. Only we know now that it's just coming out now. But they yes, suppressed it for It really is suppressed. And. and uh, Jason, it's not a, a tall guy. It's not a basketball player. It's beyond that. Well, take How a look. It's on my Twitter, Twitter feed. I'll send you a picture in email. Uh, I, 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 I want to see the Giants. That would be an awesome museum, the Giant Skeleton Museum. It's Better weird. than the bodies in and Vegas. Do you, know, do you know who we should get to talk about that? It's Jamal Thomas. Because I think it could be related to... They're tall enough... Where it could be related to people not of this earth. Is Jamal no, Thomas Jamal's really tall? Really into UFOs. So I'll bet he knows about this. But oh. <laughs> great call as usual. That's Al cool. Killer. Now 202-521-1320. Let's go to Ingrid in DC. Hey Ingrid, thanks for waiting. What's on your mind? Hey. During the last hour you guys were talking about how early Obama had a Twitter account which doesn't surprise me at all, considering he'd been groomed for a long time. And it may have been him. It may have been somebody on a huge team that set up that account. But you've often said that you, Lee, were a very, very early Twitter I'm, user. I'm sure. Were you before I'm Obama? one of the earliest 99.9% users. And my future ex-wife never lets me live down that she told me about it three weeks earlier. And I didn't get right on it. So I could have been three weeks earlier. But huh. there you go. Well, just to address that briefly, the article in The Atlantic does say that it was created by a staffer on March 5th. Obama beat you, Lee. You joined really? May 2007. Obama joined That's March. That's impressive. And you, That's Lee, are technology expert you you have your finger on the pulse of developing technology i learned about 3d animation well i mean i knew about it before but i didn't learn about it until you were making you were so sophisticated in that early on see what i'm trying to say is obama when you That's go very to law like school that. in 1980 or whatever yeah you're not dealing with computers your lawyers are typically luddites Obama is a self-proclaimed Luddite. Specifically, lawyers over 50 are going to be Luddites. And, you know, Lee is, particularly for his age, a very early 
adopter and the reason of advanced I w- technology. So the fact that Lee would be my wife on, told me about it is it wasn't clear to me what the utility was. It wasn't clear like it was must right. get on. Right. So yeah, that is bizarre. Exactly. Makes it even weirder Indeed. that Obama yeah. was there. And I've just discovered this week that this guy who's the CEO of the Emmys, who was in charge of Obama's Twitter town hall, created a company called Sharp Political Consulting in April of 2007, potentially within days of the creation of the Barack Obama Twitter account. That company was voluntarily dissolved in January of 2016. And then in December of 2016, Sharp abruptly and unexpectedly leaves Twitter, I allege, to join La Resistance because he created a new company called Sharp Things, which the website went dark the day after I published evidence talking about all this. Explain what La Resistance means, because people might be confused. I think you're just using metaphor. Ah, Yes, yes, yes. But you see all these people who didn't like Trump and and openly said they're part of the resistance. So what I'm saying is when the plan to get Hillary across the line didn't work, that thing went into all hands on deck mode. And I allege Sharp left Twitter to create this Sharp things and become much more of a social engineer and to make sure that Trump didn't win 2020. I think it was the Atlantic. They had a story this morning. Ronan Farrow, Mia Farrow's daughter, Mia Farrow's son, mm-hmm. and my alumni, I went to the same yeah. college as him. Yeah. Ronan Farrow's son, Ronan Farrow, forgive me, Woody Allen's son, Ronan Farrow has a new story that seemed good about how people are trying to dig up dirt on Mudge. Did you see that story? I didn't, but I will look at it. I am curious why he's Woody Allen's son and not Frank Sinatra's son, which he obviously is. Well, he, his, his name on the birth certificate is Woody Allen's. And speaking of birth certificates, did you see what they passed for a law in Montana? A lot of people don't know you can do this. They said that you cannot change your name retroactively on your birth certificate and change your gender. And a lot of people didn't know you could do that. But they made wow. it illegal. Change no, your for, name for, on forgive, your birth certificate. Yeah, it should be illegal. Forgive, what's forgive what's the record if I you misspoke. change it? Change your gender on your birth certificate. Ah, ah. And they said. Yeah, I agree with that, Lee. I don't. Think I don't think so either. If you want to say later you're a different gender, I don't care. But on your birth certificate, it should remain what is said. For a variety of reasons. Yeah. I can think of all kinds of problems. Yeah. But they passed that yeah. in Montana. And of yeah. course, some people are freaking out that's transphobic. Mm. Oh my God. I think I might move to Montana. There we go. <laughs> and Transphobic. Transphobic. Uh, do we have our next yes online, Command Central? Okay. The vote Malik is online. I have a- Let's take a short have- break, Jason. And then talk to Nebosha Malik about what's going on in Armenia. Great. Let's take a break on the backstory.
we're back in the back, Troy, and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. And Jason, check your messages on your phone. I just saw it. Yeah, that's And tall. read what I the caption it. says. The U.S. Supreme Court ordered the Smithsonian Institution to release classified documents dating back to the early 1900s, proving that the organization participated in a major historical, but then it cuts uh, off. Uh, cover-up. Is, is, and you see what I'm the saying? Cover up. Okay. That's not regular, that's not tall. It's twice the height of the two men standing next to it. So even if they're five feet tall, which would be exceptionally short, this thing is like ten feet tall. And the Supreme Court ordered Smithsonian. So there's something weird here. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, let's bring on our next guest. Nebosha Malik is a fantastic reporter. He's been on the show before. Hey, Nebosha, how are you doing? Hi, Lee. I'm flattered. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. So I think a lot of people Hello. aren't paying attention to the situation with Armenia. So would you set it up for us? Because I saw the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia. And we'll talk about why Russia's involved in this. But what's the situation? So... Uh about 100 people have died um, in the fighting last night. It began shortly after midnight local time. Um, Azerbaijan launched an artillery barrage and drones against uh, what they called military targets inside Armenia proper. Not the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh, but actual Armenia, um, claiming that um, Armenian saboteurs had mined roads inside Azerbaijan in order to harm Armenian servicemen. And Armenia, of course, denied this and called this all lies. Um, and today's both the, the defense ministries in Yerevan and Baku basically said that about 50 of their um, service people died in the fighting last night, which involved uh, heavy artillery, mortars, rockets. And um, according to um, multiple reports and, and video from the, uh, from the area, um, drones that were used by Azerbaijan to strike at uh, Armenian air defenses and artillery emplacements, as well as warehouses. And there were also reports that uh, power went out in one of the cities in north-central Armenia that's relatively near the border, but nowhere near where the fighting used to be, which is particularly disturbing. But this is the biggest escalation of, of hostilities since basically September 2020, uh, when the Karabakh, the Second Karabakh War, ended in a ceasefire. Now, 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 back up one second. It seems to me that that is war. When the, would you agree? When you launch an attack on another country, that is a, an act of war, right? Certainly sounds like that, and Armenia has definitely argued that to the. Uh, um, collective security organization, which it's a member of, and um, that basically means that Russia is obligated under the treaty to intervene on Armenia's side. Now, we've talked about the situation before, but not that often. So, Jason, do you know about this disputed region between Azerbaijan and Armenia? I know virtually nothing about it, but I'm intrigued by the comment that Russia is compelled to protect one of the participants because it immediately puts my head into the mode of thinking somebody did that to divide Russia's attention and get them into another war. So, uh, Nebosha, address what Jason's saying in a second. But first, pl please explain the situation between this disputed region because it gets almost no press at all in America. 
Right. Well, so um, not to like be, go too deep into the history of the place, but um, both of these countries are in the southern Caucasus, in between um, Russia and um, Turkey and Iran. And um, Armenia is sort of uh, on the western side, and Azerbaijan is on the eastern side, on, on the shore of the Caspian Sea. And Azerbaijan has access to a lot of oil, whereas Armenia is relatively poor and landlocked. It's also a shadow of um, the former territories inhabited by Armenians up to uh, about 100 years ago when the Republic of Turkey was established and his territories historically inhabited by ethnic Armenians were basically ethnically cleansed in what even the U.S. Congress at this point has recognized as a genocide. Of course, Turkey denies this. Um, and both of the, these countries were part of the Soviet Union up until 1991. Well, Soviet Union dissolves, they declare independence, and suddenly the status of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a mountainous area that is within the administrative boundaries of Azerbaijan, but is inhabited mainly by ethnic Armenians, becomes a huge problem. And um, there is a war at the time in which the Armenian troops and the um, inhabitants of Karabakh prevail over the Azerbaijani army. Uh, and the ceasefire is struck about around 1994 that freezes the conflict and puts in R Russian peacekeepers there. And it just carries on like that as a frozen conflict with Azerbaijan lobbying in the U.S. for aid uh, for years and years and years without any changes. Well, over the past several years, um, the president of Azerbaijan used the oil wealth to basically buy um, a whole bunch of weapons, including Turkish drones. And in September 2020, when everybody's attention was on COVID and elsewhere, the Azeris claimed that the Armenians had fired on them and that this was a provocation, and then they launched this massive military operation against Karabakh, not Armenia proper, technically, so they wouldn't trigger the, the treaty obligation. Think of it as NATO's Article 5, only, a, you know, different, different organization. And so they basically attacked Karabakh, and then the Armenians sent the military aid, but it wasn't enough. And within, I believe the whole thing took about a month. And it um, Moscow stepped in when the Azeri troops basically seized this crucial road. They had taken about half of Karabakh at that point. But they really, what they would really turn the tide was when they took this crucial road connecting this mountainous region to Armenia proper. And they, their troops were basically sitting on there, able to choke it off. And uh, the, government, the Armenian government, uh, which is run by this pro-U.S. prime minister who came to power in a quasi-color revolution, essentially sued for peace. Moscow sent in peacekeepers, set up this whole arrangement. Um, Erdogan uh, of Turkey uh, sort of godfathered this entire thing so the Turks were supposed to observe on, on the Azeri side. And the Russian peacekeepers were supposed to be in charge in this road. But as one of the terms of the ceasefire, um, the Armenians agreed to hand over uh, all of the internationally recognized Azeri territories outside of Karabakh. So territories north and south of the region and basically placed themselves entirely at the mercy of Azeris and the Russian peacekeepers controlling the corridor. Now, there's, there was an incident in Karabakh in early August that the Russians stopped pretty quickly. But the government in Baku was basically saying, look, you know, the mere presence of any sort of armed uh, militia in Karabakh is completely unacceptable to us. And unless they demilitarize completely, 
we will launch a special military operation to fix this. Um, yes, it's a very deliberately chosen language, but there hasn't really been that much movement on that front uh, up until last night when, again, the uh, Azeri military opened fire and uh, attacked inside Armenia proper. Armenia immediately called up France, for whatever reason, called up Russia, um, reached out to the uh, collective security organization, which is now sending some sort of fact-finding mission uh, to the region. And um, there was a report that Russians had brokered a ceasefire in the middle of the night, but uh, the Armenians, uh, the Azeris denied this was the case and just kept fighting. Um, there was another ceasefire officially recognized by both sides brokered this morning, local time, and it seems to be more or less holding. But the fact that there was an artillery exchange is, is pretty concerning for everybody. And again, you're not the first one, Jason, to, to leap to the conclusion that this may have been orchestrated with the West because a lot of people have immediately jumped to that conclusion, um, especially after the recent events in Ukraine. No. And, well, you've said something else just now that causes me to think that even more. You said that one of the country's leaders had taken over in a color revolution. That's going to be the guy who triggers the event. Well, I don't really know. Like, it's it's baffling to me um, that this prime minister hasn't been overthrown in the aftermath of the original Karabakh fiasco. Because it looked like for a moment there in, in late 2020 that... Uh, Prime Minister Pashinyan is is basically politically dead, and yet he survived, and the Armenian military got purged, and of course the people in Karabakh were completely sidelined. My my, to the best of my understanding, um, the the Karabakh political wing was basically neutered after the war, and that was sort of the counterweight to Pashinyan at home. Um, but you 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 also have Turkey, which is obviously backing Azerbaijan directly. You have Iran, which is actually opposed to Azerbaijan um, and has threatened to intervene in the conflict themselves if the Azeris attack Armenia proper on previous occasions. I'm not sure if they've made any comments about this. And then, of course, you have Russia, which is caught in between because it has a treaty obligation to Armenia. It has a peacekeeping base in the uh, in the west of the country that is, wasn't anywhere near to fighting, but obviously, you know, troops in harm's way. And then it has peacekeepers that are guaranteeing the Karabakh truce. Um, and and then you have the added complication of um, several other post-Soviet states who are members of this collective security organization being obligated by treaty to intervene against Azerbaijan. Uh, literally, nobody needs, like, nobody needs a conflict at this point, except perhaps the U.S., which, you know, wants to show to the world that, you know, Russia's powerless or weak or whatever. But even so, like the official State Department and the White House are like, no, 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 we want diplomacy. We want peaceful solution to this. And they, they just went through the basic motions today of, of condemning the fighting, but not at the actual time this happened. Admittedly, it was, you know, evening in Washington, but still, you know, the spend the entire night and then say something in the morning once the ceasefire takes effect while Russians actually work through the night to make it happen is, is illustrates the differences in approach between Washington and Moscow. This is a flank attack on Russia. It's the United States wanting Russia to have to fight two wars simultaneously, increasing the odds that they'll lose both. It certainly seems that way. And actually, there was another report from Georgia uh, today that uh, the prime minister there was saying that, you know, he's he's of a mind to call a referendum if the Georgian people want to actually fight another war with Russia because he's been, uh, you know, criticizing Ukraine for demanding 
of Georgia to enter the war officially. Um, there is a Georgian mercenary legion fighting on Ukrainian side, but, you know, Kiev has been expecting more and more and more. And, of course, the Georgians have a grievance because of 2008 when um, they attacked, um, in a similar scenario to the Azeri one with much less success, they attacked the Ossetians and uh, the Russian border army got involved and uh, basically took out the entire Georgian military in the span of a week, which created all sorts of expectations for the Ukrainian operation that were frankly unrealistic. But it also you know, sort of been sticking in the craw of Tbilisi ever since. Now, what is Russia's interest in the Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict. In other words, they negotiated this, or tried to, to negotiate peace, but what is the country of Russia's actual interest? Well, I mean, they, they do have a mutual defense treaty with Armenia, for better or for worse. I'm not sure how, to which extent, you know, um, Kremlin is happy with it right now, especially since Pashinyan took over, because of Pashinyan's, you know, pro-Western policies and whatnot, but at the same time, you know, a treaty is a treaty, and they and they have to follow through with it. I have I've only seen the basic um, diplomatic language coming out of Moscow on this. I I haven't seen any particular um, you know speculation about the second front from official sources. I mean, plenty of you know pundits and bloggers are saying some different things. But you know, Moscow is very Moscow is trying to maintain good relations with both, um, and. Um, you know, from a purely geopolitical standpoint, you don't necessarily want to see Turkey dominating that particular space, even though um, Erdogan's sort of uh, um, semi-friendly with Russia right now. He's he's basically the whole Turkish role in the region is uh, is a different story. But I don't think anybody trusts Turkey, not the West, not not the Middle East, not Russia, not even the Caucasus. As far as they can throw them, um, they're just trying to, you know, get Turkish support for whatever policy initiatives they have on a transactional basis. But you know, Turkey does have a history of trying to be a regional hegemon, and and uh, you know, Erdogan has more than once voiced his sympathies for the Ottoman age. So, you know, I I don't think Moscow is inclined to be benevolent towards the notion of, you know, some sort of Turkish regional hegemony in Central Asia in territories of the former Soviet Union. Um, and the ones that, you know, Moscow historically before the Soviet Union was even a thing had had worked against. So that that alone might account for Moscow's active engagement in the region, uh, regardless of the existing treaty with Armenia, which, as I said, is, is actually in place and Russia has obligations under it. Now, how bad could this situation get? So we saw fighting last night, but what's the fear about how this could escalate? I've, I mean, if if Azerbaijan attacks Armenia proper, um, full on, um, there's again there's a treaty obligation for the collective security organization to intervene. If it doesn't intervene. It's basically defunct, and that's a major pillar of Russian Central Asia policy gone. Um, Russia's made to look bad in the world, which is probably the least of the problems on the list here, because um, there's uh, also partly because of the Karabakh situation, but partly due to a religious consideration, because the Armenians have their own Christian church and Azeris are predominantly Muslim. There's also a religious um, hatred dimension here, and 
Um, a lot of ethnic cleansing is in the cards, depending on who advances where. Um, and, you know, Azerbaijan also has the issue that one of their uh, one of their territories is actually on the other side of Armenia, uh, the, the, the Autonomous Republic of Nakhichevan, from which the current ruling dynasty in Azerbaijan is actually from. So under this ceasefire in 2020, there was supposed to be this uh, corridor linking Nakhichevan to the rest of Azerbaijan, just as Armenia would have a free communication with Karabakh. And I'm not sure that at this point they're uh, satisfied with that, or do they want an actual land bridge? But if they try to punch through, then Iran might get involved. And so all of a sudden you have this regional Caucasus conflict that may draw in Iran, Turkey, um, all of the Central Asian Soviet republics. Um, obviously, Turkey being a member of NATO, that pulls in the West. Um, obviously, Russia, and um, you know, it, it's the, the. I mean, the Caucasus is is almost worse than the Balkans in terms of uh, um, the sheer amount of territorial and ethnic conflicts that might trigger a wider confrontation. And this, there's certainly a, a, a significant danger of that happening here. And how great a danger do you see that Russia gets involved militarily? Is that possible? I mean. Anything is possible. Uh, the past six or seven months have taught me that uh, it's uh, it, it's a thankful task to try to predict what the Russian military may or may not do. Uh, that said, again, there is this treaty obligation. Um, there, you know, if NATO doesn't live up to Article Five, NATO becomes meaningless. If the Collective Security Organization doesn't commit to defending Armenia when it's clearly attacked, then it becomes meaningless. So that alone is is pressuring them into doing something about it. Now, so far, they've been doing it through diplomacy. They've been doing it through sending that mission, brokering a ceasefire. I'm not sure what would happen if Azerbaijan decides to you know press their luck and basically say, we don't care, we've got the Turks with us, and we're just going to go ahead. Um, I don't know what the actual um, strength of the respective militaries uh, might be. I think the Armenians might have a problem when it comes to Azeri drones, uh, similar to what the people in Karabakh did, because they had a lot of armor and artillery, but they had nearly no um, air defenses, and the drones just made free work of, of all of their tanks and cannons, which is one of the big factors in um, in uh, Azerbaijani victory, and also created this whole myth about the uh, Turkish drones that has compelled Ukraine to buy a whole bunch of them and hasn't used them to as successful of an effect. But, um, I mean, it's, it's, it, it all depends on what Azerbaijan does, basically. Turkish drones are quite powerful and dangerous. They're very large, and they're actually like OEMs of this Israeli drone. It's the exact same design. They, the, the Turks and the Iranians have been developing strike drones, uh, specifically suicide drones, which are somewhat different than the, it's a bit, it's a bit of a different approach than the, than the U.S. kind, which sort of, you know, um, operates as a standoff weapon in areas without any sort of uh, air defenses, whereas both of these are designed for somewhat hostile skies. Um, the, the Ukrainian experience, not to get into too technical details, but, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to operate Baryaktars and Akinjis in areas without sophisticated air defenses. But if you have um, some kind of, you know, radar and air defense network, they, they don't fare too, too well, as the Ukrainians found out. But yes, they are, I mean, 
it wouldn't do to underestimate them as a weapon. Um, it's just a question of, you know, do the, do the Azeris want to commit to a full-scale invasion, or was this just a warning shot? And we honest, honestly, nobody outside of Baku can really give an answer to that. Um, but um, again, if this is framed as a, you know, I don't think the timing of this was accidental. Um, I think this happening right as the Ukrainians launched this big offensive in Kharkov and the entire Western media and all of their troll armies on social media started hyping, you know, the war is over, we're winning, blah, blah, blah. Uh, right. I, I think this was, I think this may have been a cons- part of a concerted effort to make Russia look weak or divert its attention um, and, you know, score some points and capture some territory in the process. Think of it as a probing attack. Can you speak a bit more about, because I've noticed that. It started three or four days ago where they said, oh, you know, Russian withdrawal, Ukraine surging, you know, the war is turning the tide. But I see no evidence of that other than headlines on Drudge Report and elsewhere. I mean, I I don't necessarily want to discuss matters tactical because I, that's not my field of expertise. I'm, I'm the big picture guy. Um, and uh, a lot of people are... There's there's definitely been a huge uptick in psyops, uh, in parallel to the actual fighting on the ground, and um, you know just earlier today you you had the New York Times basically saying that the Pentagon and the, and the British military war gamed this for the Ukrainians and provided intelligence and obviously everybody's you know trying to maintain plausible deniability and say oh yeah we just gave them all they needed and the Ukrainians made the decision themselves and did all of the fighting with. U.S. supplied weapons, but there's also no denying of, you know, English-speaking fighters being involved in this, and, um, you know, I wouldn't quite put it as this being a NATO operation, but, you know, you, you, you have Russians saying, you know, we, we're basically fighting NATO, not Ukraine, and that's, a, you know, that's, yeah. a, that's an interesting escalation. It's clear, isn't right? it? Um, I mean, again, this is one of those things of, um, I am personally baffled by the tactics of this. So I, I want to reserve my judgment, but the strategy of it is, you know, on the Western side, you, you've, you've basically got all of these military geniuses that failed in Iraq and failed in Afghanistan, and we're supposed to believe that they've sudden, they're suddenly miraculously succeeding in Eastern Ukraine, and their grand strategy is basically to defeat the Russian army in the field, and then question mark, question mark, question mark, and then profit with, you know, Putin signing an unconditional surrender and uh, declaring the, you know, greater Ukraine or something. I'm honestly baffled as to what their endgame might be. I mean, the Russian endgame is an enigma for me as well, because, you know. It's to press West into Russia and balkanize the place and steal all of its natural resources. That's always the whole partition map, which, you know, I, I can't see the Russians accepting this peacefully or lying down. So it's a bit of a pipe dream. Nabosha, we're going to let you go early because i got another clip I want to play. But you, where can people find you writing? This is a great appearance, Nabosha. Thanks so much. Thank where can people find you writing on this? Um, thank you. Well, um, my stuff is usually up on Twitter at Nabosha Malich, um, and I'm also on Telegram as The Nebulator, uh, trying to make sense out of this stuff on a daily basis. And you did a fantastic job of making sense of a very complex situation. Thank you so much, Devotion Malich. 
Let's let's go to the clip. The last clip. Uh, uh, hit it. Just how dishonest is the New York Times? It's really a philosophical question. It's hard to answer directly. Hmm, let's see. How drunk was the guy you saw passed out in the men's room at a Packers game? How angry is Hillary Clinton at her husband? Well, the answer in all cases is very, extremely, so thoroughly and so totally that it's hard to put into words. So instead of describing the dishonesty of the New York Times with conventional adjectives, we'll give you a specific example because we think it tells you more. So last week, the paper told us that the best-selling book in the United States was a title called I'm Glad My Mom Died by a child actress called Jeanette McCurdy. But that was not true. That book was not the best-selling book in America. In fact, the best-selling book in America last week was The Great Reset and the War for the World, written by Alex Jones. Jones sold more than 56,000 copies of his book last week. Jeanette McCurdy, whatever her merits, we have no idea, sold 34,686 copies of her book. So Alex Jones sold a lot more books. Alex Jones had the biggest book in the country, but the New York Times lied about that because the New York Times doesn't want you to know that. The New York Times wants you to believe that Alex Jones is more discredited than the New York Times. The paper that started the Iraq war by lying about weapons of mass destruction and got a million people killed. But Alex Jones is worse. He's a mental patient. No one listens to him. So they lied about his book. What else are they lying about? You wonder. Well, we don't want to hear. We reported on it. And I want to say congratulations to Alex Jones for having a best-selling book in the country. Yeah. Right, Jason? Absolutely. Is that the first book Alex has written? I got to get that. Yeah. Uh, it's the first book I've heard of in a while. And it, it's why yeah. I say, in a lot of ways, we are in the golden age of journalism. The truth is out there if you want to find it. And if you want to not be fooled by propaganda, you don't have to be. Do you agree, Jason? Yep, but you got to be ready to get maligned and sued and all kinds of stuff like that. And attacked as Tucker Carlson has been. And I'm going to say once again, props to Tucker, because Tucker bringing this up on his show and his top-rated Fox show is gutsy. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to help Alex because people, you know, I mean, my mom watches Tucker Carlson. I don't think she knows who Alex Jones is from being on my show. But, you know, something like that would prompt somebody like my mother to be like, you know, maybe I should read that book. So it should help Alex sell more books. And it's an important topic. And. The Great Reset and the WEF, because, you know, that relates directly to the story we were talking about for a couple of days. Christina Freeland. Christina Freeland. Oh, yeah. She's as connected as you can be to the WEF. And the Ukraine is a proxy for the WEF, not just the U.S., but for the WEF. Do you agree with that, Jason? I do. WEF is something that should be, you know, disbanded. I don't know why anybody cares what Klaus Schwab says. He, he's not even a Star Wars villain, Lee. You know what he is? He's a villain from one of these, name the movie that came out, you know, in 1977 to 1980 when every cheesy thing was trying to be like Star Wars. They'd have a Klaus Schwab in there who's just, he's not and even the, Darth Vader. He's just such a putz. It's unbelievable. Full sci-fi nerd, as we end the show, I'm going to say his outfits are from Babylon 5. Yeah. And if people exactly. don't remember Babylon 5, look it up. So, great job, Colin, <laughs> as usual. And thanks so much to Nebosha Mouch. Great appearance. And Ian the Schilling, we always like talking to Ian. 
and as a great appearance by him. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks to all callers on the best damn talk show in the world. This is a backstory.